It's the second and final part of our deep dive into the albums of Susie and the Banshees, so if you haven't heard part one yet, jump back an episode and start there. If you've already listened to that, you don't need me to tell you that Temporary Fandoms is a podcast where we listen to all the albums by one artist in order of release, or that the show is much better on Mixcloud, where a $2.99 subscription means you can listen with the music we're actually talking about. I mean, why wouldn't you? I didn't mention, however, that this podcast started life as a Facebook group, which you can find at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans, and the podcast itself now lives at infrequency.co.uk, but you can still find it in all the other places too, including Beat Rehab. In this episode, we're rejoined by the same cast as last time, we get all misty-eyed about John Peel, and Ewan is still banging on about his local indie club. I'm sure you can't wait to hear that, so get ready as I hit start on the concluding episode of Susie and the Banshees. Hello there, welcome to part two of the Temporary Fandoms look at the work and discography of Susie and the Banshees. Um, I'm going to keep this brief, so as you know, I'm Ewan. I'm Nick. And we have the same guests that we had in part one, which is uh, Lena Cortina. Hello. Hello, uh, Vim Reno. Hi from Vim. <laughs> and Jeffrey McDonald. Glad to be back. Excellent. Um, if this is the first one you're listening to, then obviously me saying this is part two should give you a clue that go and find part one. Um, it's either in your pod player or it's on infrequency.co.uk. Um, I'm not going to talk about it for much longer um jeffrey um what are we doing in this part this part we're going over the second half of Susie's career where we're going to cover uh tinderbox through the last Susie album uh uh rapture and then Susie's solo album as well manta ray awesome thank you very much um okay so if you're listening to this you probably know the drill by now um we're going to disappear you're going to hear somebody talk you through a couple of albums if you're on the mixed cloud version, then there'll be some music as well. And we'll all be back in a bit. Meeting yet another guitar player for their upcoming tour, the Banshees recruited John Carruthers of the industrial dance band Clock DVA. At first, he seemed a bit too blokey for Susie's taste, but he fell into the fold after suffering numerous pranks and hazing rituals from the rest of the band. After Carruthers joined, the band recorded the Thorny P, which was a reworking of older tracks to sound how they had evolved over several tours. The album was an excuse to bring John up to speed with the setlist, as well as a way for Susie to continue playing with string arrangements like she'd started to for the recording of the Hyena album. This was a tumultuous time for the Banshees, reaching highs and lows for each member of the band. The press had started to turn on the band. One article even said, why don't they just go away? Around this time, Susie said, it's probably out of sheer spite that we've continued for so long. They started to write and record for their next album, Tinderbox, but progress was slowed down by an aggressive tour schedule. Along with that, Sue and Severn felt that Carruthers did not seem to click with the loose, experimental, and collaborative songwriting process of the band. He started out with a lot of ideas, but as time went on, he seemed to lose confidence, and each song ended up being written within an inch of its life as the band tried to work out his guitar parts. Matters were not helped by having a revolving door of producers. At one point they got Bob Ezrin, who they wanted because he produced many Alice Cooper albums as well as Lou Reed's Berlin. But to quote Susie, he turned out to be a complete prick, so that didn't last long. 
At the same time, there was an incident where Susie dislocated her knee at a show at the Hammersmith Odeon. Not long after that, while on tour in Berlin, Susie and Budgie, who were discreetly dating at the time, got into a heated argument one night, the aftermath of which ended with Susie kicking her leg through a glass door and going to sleep with the foot bleeding from the large pieces of glass embedded in it, and Budgie going on a bender so hard that he woke up in a hospital hooked to an IV with the doctor telling him that he probably had more alcohol in his veins than blood. Budgie's experience led him down the path of sobriety, working out, and vegetarianism. Susie's experience reminded her of her extended teenage hospitalization and also evoked some suppressed memories of childhood trauma. It understandably took her some time to crawl out of the dark and detached mental place that those memories put her in, and part of working her way out of that dark place bled into her songwriting during this period. In spite of these personal trials, the Banshees eventually finished recording Tinderbox. The theme of the album was loosely based around a time when T.S. Eliot arrived in London in 1921. According to Susie, they were having the most freaked out freaky weather ever. A drought had hit London and people had deserted it to go to the coast or shoreline or lakes to escape the oppressive dry heat that relentlessly beat down. Finally, in their desperation to cause the clouds to burst, they fired cannons at the sky ritualistically every night. Right when they thought they had recorded the final track for the album, Severn brought them one more song inspired by the band's visit to Pompeii called Cities of Dust. Susie worried that it was a bit too catchy, but they squeezed it onto the album anyway. The song became the band's highest charting US single at the time and their first US mainstream hit. For me, this album has always been one that flies by while I'm listening to it. I'm happy to hear prominent guitar back in the songs, but if the album has a fault, it's that Susie might be correct. Cities of Dust really is a bit too catchy. Don't get me wrong, I think it's one of the best songs by the band, but it draws a lot of attention from the other songs on the album which are great by their own right if given a chance. Candyman, the unrest with its back and forth between the cool verses and the frantic chorus in 92 Degrees are particular favorites of mine. After the release of Tinderbox, the band went on several tours including South America where, true to their reputation, the locals love good rock music and the Banshees were a smash hit. After touring, the band returned to England to start to work on their next album. After the long and torturous process of writing Hyena and Tinderbox, the Banshees wanted to produce an album quickly. The Dear Prudence single had been a huge success for the band, and they figured it would not be as difficult to work out guitar parts for Carruthers on songs that were already written, so they decided to do a pinups inspired covers album. The covers varied from Sparks and John Cale to Billie Holiday and a song from the Disney film The Jungle Book. Unfortunately, John never did quite fit with the band, and the guitarist was let go not long after the album was released. Through the Looking Glass got mediocre reviews when it came out. This is one of the first Susie albums that I owned, and I bought it at such a young age that the Banshees version was often the first version I've heard of many of these songs. Because of that, I oftentimes like the Banshees versions of these songs as much, if not more, than the originals. For my younger self, this album was my gateway to learn about bands like Kraftwerk and Roxy Music. The Passenger is an example of a song where I like each version equally. Susie's version just has a great spark to it, and possibly a controversial statement, but I like the added horn section. But then again, Iggy's version has that crazy Bowie backing vocal going for it. When Susie and Budgie played Iggy their cover of the song before the album was released, he got a kick out of it. She sings it well, and she threw in a little note when she sings it that I wish I had thought of. It's kind of improved it. The horn is a good thing. They then took Iggy and his wife to a Chinese ballet followed by a Japanese dinner. Susie did not state whether or not Iggy wore a shirt to the opera, so I'm just going to assume that he didn't. 
Hello, welcome back. Um, you have been huh, hopefully listening to some music, but definitely been talked through the first couple of Susan the Banshee's albums for this episode. Still with me is Nick. Hello. Lena. Hello. Vim. And Jeffrey. Hi, hi. Um, before we get cracking, um, mainly because I should have done this in the last episode and I didn't. Um, Lena and Vim, um, obviously, I mean, I mentioned it quite a lot last time. You you run the the website, the blog, and the the zine for Punk Girl Diaries. Um, why? How? What? <laughs> Punk Girl Diaries. It's a it's a blog site. It's a, a zine now in print, forty page full color zine which I think we started just uh, when they called a lockdown because we had suddenly a bit of time on our hands to do that and it was something we wanted to do. But we started it off um, in 2018 because we'd been talking about doing something and I'm you know, wanting to put something in ironic inverted commas. Um, there was a big punk exhibition at the British Library in 2016 and you know, as predicted, it was Sex Pistols Clash. But on the opening night, Viv Albertine from the Slits turned up and with a big marker pen wrote on the introductory board at the exhibition, where are all the girls? And she crossed out Sex Pistols and she crossed out the Clash and she crossed out loads of people <laughs> and she wrote the Slits, Susie and the Banshees, which is apropos tonight, X-Ray Specs, um, because they didn't really seem to get much of a, a mention. And um, I think that, that there was... You know, it, something happened during punk, especially to girls, or something different happened to girls. There was some kind of immediate liberation. And uh, we, t we kept talking about, you know, doing something. Somebody should do something about this. Somebody should be mentioning this. And so we decided maybe we should be doing something about it. And so that's when we started blogging. Uh, because we also thought Fantastic. it can't just be us. There must be other people who feel like yeah. this. And that's 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 what happened. <laughs> awesome. Um, and your latest your latest edition of the zine. What's in it? Um, in zine number eight, I get them all mixed up. But uh, we're, we're currently actually working on a new one, which is the thing that's in my head. Um, I'll get I'll one. Get one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't um, remember. If you are listening, if you are listening to this. <laughs> That is punkgirldiaries.com, um, not .co.uk, we're .co.uk, .com. Um, go over there, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, all, all of the stuff. Yeah, we um, it, It's good to We talked to Michelle Brigandage, who was there at the 100 Club on that first gig for Susie and the Banshees. We talked uh, to Bush Tetras. We talked to Penis, new band. And we talked to Karen Yarnell of the Gym Slips. And Deidre Cartwright, who used to be on the um, British TV uh, Rock School series, teaching us how to play guitar. Um, but lots of other fun things. And we like um, getting cartoons from old Jackie magazines and rewriting them. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, we'll put links to everything in the stuff below. But, you know, you might have come here because you're fans of Punk Girl Diaries, in which case... Yeah, you. Well done. Please stay. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you stay. Yeah, we're, we're all right. Honestly, we're, we're not bad. Um, okay. So we're going to get cracking. Uh, we'll take a few detours on the way. Um, first album we're going to get into is, wait, before I get into this, 
Is it still is, is Robert Smith still in the band, Jeffrey? No, he's he's just left after the Hyena album. Right before <sighs> they were going to go on tour, it was during that period they recorded uh, the Glove album. He recorded the Top with Cure, Hyena, and Robert was apparently taking what Bill Hicks refers to as a heroic amount of drugs. And he just had a complete crash. And so about a week before they were supposed to leave on tour, he came to the band with a doctor's note saying that he could not go on tour, which Susie had some very unkind words about. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. He, he turned up, um, Mr. Mr. Sadgoff turned up with a, a sick note saying he couldn't right. go on like tour. Like a kid at school. The yes. <laughs> Please make the excuse from touring with Susie the Banshees. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope it was that specific. Yeah. I really hope it was that specific. Um, well, I understand there right, was so, uh, no love lost between hmm? them. Um, the, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I, I heard something recently where Sushi was uh, saying some pretty harsh words about, I think she described Robert Smith as a poor little sparrow. Yes, she said uh, that yeah. sparrow with a broken wing bit doesn't fly with me or something along those lines. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, she does occasionally seem to come out with quite harsh stuff about people she got what 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 was the word like a really sharp tongue sometimes like if you she seems to be if you cross her particularly music journalists along the way particularly guitarists um, <laughs> yes well for, for susan the band she's guitarists are like the spinal tap drummer right mm-hmm. well she said the guitarists are like their their sort of picture of dorian gray in the attic where they go through the guitarist the band keeps going while the guitarists wither away <laughs> I, I mean luckily though i mean as as a band they're not a band who you associate with a, a, a signature lead guitar sound right i mean they're not somebody who you've gone over the years oh yeah this band has this bass player you know they sound like no i, I you know, pixies for example okay yeah there's a kim deal sound there's a joseph satriani joe santiago that's right sound <laughs> santiago sound you know there's there's this certain sound whereas Susie and the Banshees, there's, there's, there's drums and there's Susie and there's a band yeah. that changes a bit, but there's no, yeah. So I don't think they've really missed on the guitar front. Right. I've started to waffle. Let's get on to actually the album uh, proper, which is um, Tinderbox mm-hmm. in 1986, which is absolutely definitely not a proper goth album. It's such a goth album. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, before I pass this over, I mean, so I, I mean, I'm, I had a bit of a lull with this one. Um, the, the one track I, that I knew more than anything else, I think it's because it's been on soundtrack after soundtrack was, uh, Citizen Dust. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. Citizen Dust has been rolled out quite a lot. Um, particularly, and you go, oh yeah, that's, that's, that's that Susan Abanshi's track. I didn't know the name of, and, and now I know the name of it. Um, Jeffrey, could you give us some context? And then, then we're going to go around and start chatting to people because I'm starting to ramble. Yeah, there was, a, um, and I probably already covered this in the intro, but there was a lot of turmoil going into recording this album. And uh, the band was sort of in a rough place. And this is another one that took them quite a while to record. And the theme of the album is loosely based off T.S. Eliot's visit to London in 1921, where there was a gigantic heat wave and people were so frustrated they were fire cannons at the clouds every night. And uh, and a couple of the songs on the album, Cannons and 92 Degrees, reflect that. And um, I, for this album, really noticeable is the guitar is back. And the guitarist they get is John Carruthers from Clock DVA, and uh, where they were really pulling back from it on the last album. And this one, he comes in and um, 
kind of brings back a little of that rocking uh, aggression sort of guitar noise similar to um uh the name uh similar to McGeeock's style almost a little too mimicking and i i don't know i really like this album as a whole i think the one problem is right when they were at the end of recording it Severin came in with his idea for cities and dust and Susie actually said she was worried it was too catchy and I think if, we don't want hits. Right, if, <laughs> Why would we want to hit? <laughs> and honestly, I think if there's a problem with the album is that she's right. It's a great song, but it sort of pulls the attention away from all the other songs on the album. It just stands out so much as this catchy little hit that it's easy to pass by the rest of the album. But the rest of the album, I think, really does grow on me the more I listen to it. Uh, but aren't they a band that? And actually, I'll, I'll come over to 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 one of the our punk girl diarists about this in a second. Aren't they a band? That regardless of what the album is like, they know how to they know how to knock out a single or two. Like a lot of these albums start or very early on in the album, there's a banging single. Whether or not it's their best albums <laughs> that we're talking about at the time, they, they they really know how to get singles out. Um, Lena, you've just gone off mute, so I'll go straight <laughs> to you. Um, <laughs> um, you reached out to some people on Twitter to ask them some, something or something. I think Vin's got something to say about that. She's got the update. I kind of know more about that. I mean, we, I just thought it would be interesting, particularly because last time I said I really was a singles girl and their singles meant a lot to me and I never really spent the time with the albums that I think a lot of fans really did. And so I thought, well, I wonder if I was unusual in that. Um, so I put the question out um, and got loads of uh, really, really interesting comments 86 people actually responded to that question which is pretty wow. good yeah. um, and i would say there was a, a real sort of 50 50 balance more people than i thought said yes singles band and also uh, the singles compilation um albums um mm. so more people than i thought were uh, into the singles and then when it was albums it was the early ones it was scream it was kaleidoscope um but also there was a lot of um like in favor of like the peel sessions so it's good we're talking about that as well today <laughs> yeah yeah that's definitely one i want to i want to come to in, in, in a second the, the whole peel sessions thing um this album i mean we're we're midway through the 80s and at this point a lot of a lot of bands from that punk wave have either split died um or become really boring and just going through the motions what for 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 you, Vim or Lena? Where does this album sit? Um, it's a very difficult time for any nineteen seventies punk band to be midway through the eighties. How are they carrying this off? I don't know. I I this is Lena. Hello. Um, I think Tinderbox has got a real confidence to it, and it, it's interesting what you just said about you know singles and and you know tracks that start albums and. Um, Candyman, which kicks off Tinderbox. It's a really energetic start to an album. And I, I think that, you know, for, for all the things that are going on that, that Jeffrey's just talked about, I think Susie's vocals on this are absolutely masterful. So, yeah, I, it, it kind of gets a good vote because they're still using all those kind of textured rhythms and acoustic guitars, harking back to the McGeeock era and stuff. But, yeah, I think it's a great album, Tinderbox. Very, very tight, confident album. I really like it as well because I wasn't that familiar with it at the time, 
Um, it was around about the time when I was forming a band. So I was doing a band. I wasn't listening to what other people were doing. Um, and the band that I formed had this bass player that used a flanger. And then when I listened to this album, this was obviously very fashionable at the time because it's a very flanged sound to the bass most of the way through. Um, the other, the influence I wonder about on the guitar is, uh, of course, the Smiths had sort of broken through um, quite recently, and it's whether or not there's a sort of Johnny Marr influence to some of the kind of guitar playing. Just a thought. Well, I think Johnny Marr name-checked um, John Mugo, the other guy, <laughs> the previous guitarist who wasn't Robert Smith. Um, he sort of name-checked him as an influence. So there's a kind of circular thing happening there, perhaps. Uh, there, is definitely a, there is definitely a sort of mid-'80s alternative sound Mm-hmm. Or like that you can hear from this. They might not sound like the Smith. They might not sound like some of the the, the goth bands that are coming out, but there's definitely a mid-80s sound that's not post-punk. Mm-hmm. Very importantly, for a band that came out of the punk era, they haven't gone down the post-punk route. They've, they've taken a, a sort of different direction. Um, yeah, I mean, I like I said, it was a bit of a lull for me, but that's because, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Nick? Yeah, nothing on. much to add to that, really. Um, I, I mean, other than the real standout is Cities in Dust. That's a kind of real indie night banger for that time, I think. Um, and the rest of the album, I didn't have strong feelings about, to be honest. <laughs> oh, before before we move on, um, I tend mainly because we had this conversation with a previous um, American regular guest, Aaron, um, and we were just trying to explain the concept of what we mean by an indie night. Oh, yeah. um, Jeffrey. Um, did you have the same sort of thing every Saturday? There was a place you could go to, and they would just basically play all of the indie tunes and alternative tunes that were popular at the time, regardless of, of genre. Or were you like Aaron Troy White, who was on the last episode, driving around looking for a quarry? <laughs> I wasn't looking for a quarry, but uh, yeah, that doesn't sound really familiar to me. I mean, I was mostly just going to see live music most of the time, and I wasn't really a club kid until I got way after the fact, deep into the goth scene in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so that's those were pretty much the only clubs I was going to. Is, is it because of the drinking age thing? I just mm. thought, because obviously we were, Nick and I, I mean, uh, I'm guessing Lena and Vin were probably 16-year-olds going out drinking cider and blackcurrant, vaguely pretending we were 18, but not really, every, every weekend and listening to, a, I mean, we'd go, I'd go somewhere and they would play They'd play the Smiths. They'd also play the Pixies. They'd play Dinosaur Jr. They'd play mm-hmm. whatever, 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 week in, week out. And it's, I mean, it's probably six years, no, five years of my life that there was an indie night every Saturday night. So it's, I just assume everybody had them. Um, Lena, did what was your Saturday night sticky floor? Like cider and blackcurrant. <laughs> it was probably eighty six, eighty seven. It was probably at the Bull and Gate um, in Kentish Town. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you know the indie club thing, there'd always be bands on, either bands you'd heard of or bands you'd never heard of. But then there'd be like you know a little club night afterwards. That you know that was quite common to to, to have a club night immediately after the bands. Right. Yeah. Now I remember it wasn't my first shout out to the Lord Raglan. That was my formative years. But you think you're right. I used to go to a place called Palomas um, in Wolverhampton, and Picasso's was downstairs. And we'd watch bands like, I don't know, Drop or Fatima Mansions or whatnot. And then we'd go downstairs and dance to other tunes till the, till the early hours. Um, 
I think I saw the primitives there as well. Yeah, yeah just we. And that was like a Wednesday yeah. night for one pound fifty, <laughs> and after you got a drink in, included with that, oh, I missed these times. <laughs> um, Vin, Vin, what was what was, what was your uh, indie stomping ground? I was in Leicester at the, in those years, and the fan club would be the you know peak indie disco place to go. But I also DJ'd at a little wine bar called Le Chateau Wine Bar that only sold wine, but it had an indie night and it was anything, you know, 60s stuff merged with Sisters of Mercy and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. Awesome there really was a golden age of the indie night. There really was. And it was, it, it was I'm, I'm so sorry, Jeffrey. I'm so sorry you didn't have this. <laughs> What's strange is it's almost like that now if you go to a bar, any of the cool bars now will have play 90s and 80s alternative music now where it's very strange where just putting the timeline on that where that'd be like going out in the 80s to a really cool bar and hearing 1950s music oh no they weren't cool bars (laughs) they were not cool bars they were dirty sticky messy bars um but yeah but i think you're right like back then we'd be listening to be like oh there's there's some Jimi hendrix my god that's so old Mm. let's check out the latest from nirvana and now they're going Oh, Christ, Nirvana was 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> right. We're going to move on, and I'm going to take a slight detour. Um, those, I, while we were listening to all of the studio albums, um, I kept seeing one thing crop up when I was doing some reading, and that people were saying that the Peel Sessions collection was really worth listening to. And this was, a, I think, about eight. One was 87, one was 89. So I'm just going to take the detour now. Um, people are looking at me like they don't want me to ask them a question about no, it. We talked, <laughs> briefly, we talked briefly We talked briefly in the last episode about how, or I did, about how maybe the first album sounded like they were constrained by the studio and the, the, the live energy wasn't getting out. What I took from listening to the Peel sessions was, oh, this, this, this was the Susie and the Banshees that must have made people were getting passionate about um vim you're 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 nodding your head like i've actually said something correct for once yes um (laughs) vim so for the peel sessions for you um what i mean am i right is this the band that they should have been or am i just blowing it out of proportion i never listened to the peel sessions lp because i listened to the peel sessions when they were broadcast and it was about the most amazing thing that he played and everybody I know taped it from the radio. And so, you know, there was a particular way of taping a Peel session, which would be you'd get your cassette all queued up. He would talk. You would, you'd never record Peel talking, which is strange because I'd quite like to hear that now. Um, and then you'd get it as soon as he said, Susie, the banshees, and you'd, you'd press record, the track would play, and then straight away you'd, you'd put it off. And then you would replay that cassette over and over again um through the week um and it was just such an amazing a, a different sound and everybody really got into it and loads and loads of people like that um at the same time i also bought a bootleg live tape um which is was a big thing way back then um for, for bands that hadn't done any official releases um if you go to a market or whatever there'd be these bootleg people selling cassette tapes of of live things and they'd make these black and white photocopied covers for them and so my getting into Susie and the Banshees was you know way way before the first album it was this bootleg tape mm-hmm. session on cassette 
So, yes, I'm glad it came out on an LP, but I never actually listened to it on an LP. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, it for me, I was just like, oh, brilliant. Because I, I, I just felt there would be there was something missing. Um, we didn't talk about it in the introductions, and we are going to move on to the studio album. But if you're listening now and you haven't checked it out, it really is worth listening. Also, um, feel free to reach out to us and tell us what your favorite Peel session was, because um, Nick and I still miss him dearly to this day. I think most people do, right? It's John Peel. You know, I, we do this because we like to John Peel, and we have these. We're harboring these these fantasies that this makes us a little bit more like jumping. <laughs> um, all right, so we have talked on previous podcasts when we've had when we covered other bands um, about the idea of covers albums, and sometimes a covers album is great, sometimes it isn't. Um, we're moving on to 1987's "Through the Looking Glass," um, Jeffrey. Is this a covers album that sounds like a bunch of different songs from different artists, or is it one of those covers albums where the band makes them sound like their own? I, I, there's no way I can be unbiased about this at all. This was one of the first CDs I ever owned when switching from vinyl to CD. I bought this when I was 16 years old. I listened to this album to death. And again, a young 16-year-old kid who growing up in California I didn't know who Roxy Music was, much less Sparks or Kraftwerk. So I thought these were all originals aside from, oh, that's a Doors song, isn't it? And so I thought these were all Susie songs growing up. And slowly through the years, I realized it was a cover album. And I just adored this growing up. And I, I still, it's among my favorite albums by the band. Even I, other, oh, wow. other people coming to it later or differently may, or who know the other versions of these songs first, probably feel very differently about it. But I just love this album. Was this your first Susie and the Banshees album? The first one I owned was Peep Show on vinyl. And um, yeah, I... But was this, was this your in? Was this, the, was this the way you got in? One of the ins. Because like, often, often with a band's canon, you, the first album you listen to, regardless of whether it's the best one, remains the one that you hold dear. I'm just trying to work I out. I had the, uh, the, um, the advantage of having an older brother. So he really was my in. She had, he had the earlier albums on, uh, on cassette and vinyl. And so I would for his record collection but peep show came out right after he went away to college and so that was the first one i had to buy on my own and actually own myself and listen to on my own so peep show and this one the first one i had on cd we'll get, were my first well, two we'll get to peep show we'll get to peep show later jeffrey loves this he, he thought they were all original they were all Susie originals which is which i think is rather great actually i i, I do sometimes i do sometimes love finding out that a song i have thought was by a particular artist for years and years and years and years and years was actually a cover. Pop will eat itself, Beaver Patrol. I'm looking at you. Well, um, I didn't know that. Lena. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's weird. It's, 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 really, it's like listening to the original um, uh, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. It's like, what? This exists by someone else? Um, Lena, it's a covers album. Where do you stand on covers albums? Where do you stand on this covers album? You were in the Poppin' Jays. Did you ever do covers? I, we did. We did. We did. Um, we did a version of "I'm a Believer," which uh, <laughs> I think I think has now gone down as a terrible mistake. But at the, <laughs> at the time, we were being encouraged to do that because everybody else was doing cover versions. The Wonder Stuff did "Dizzy," and there were all sorts of other things going on. But let's just, let's let's move along from that. Let's move along from that. <laughs> Yeah, the least said about that, the better, probably. Um, Through the Looking Glass, yeah, it's a covers album, but I think it's a real 
I think it's a nod to Bowie and um, pinups, mm-hmm. um, which was what was that seventy three, seventy four? Yeah, Bowie about put that, that yeah, out, yeah. and um, you know, he he referenced things that had influenced him. So I think what this is is it's a bit of a nod to doing that because uh, there's a very kind of arch playlist that they've picked out. They they haven't kind of done anything naff. They've they've gone for you know. Dylan, Kraftwerk, Sparks, Billie Holiday. And, you know, some things work better than others. The Passenger, I think, is, you know, it was a huge, huge old hit, Um, massive hit. And it's, I think it's probably a better record than the original, but, you know. (gasps) It's not even my my favourite cover version of The Passenger. Yeah, <laughs> there are other covers of this song that I prefer to this, and I think I wrote down "Naff Eighties Brass." Ooh. Yeah, the brass, the brass on the, the passenger. The, the, I really yeah. dislike it. The brass is, but what I think kind of is, you know, standing back and looking at this this record, I think what what's interesting is that the the cover versions, even though they all kind of sound like the Banshees, and a new listener would probably think, "Oh, yes, they all sound like they're from the same band." I think what it does is it forces Susie to sing vocal lines maybe that she wouldn't naturally do. So I think that that's kind of interesting. And I think it's an interesting sort of marker in her progression because her vocals just get better and better and better as these albums go on, I think. Yeah, no, totally. Um, Vim, um, you're looking confused. You're dropping your cat. You're pressing, <laughs> you're pressing, you're pressing mute. Um, Vim, how about, where do you stand on, where do you stand on the covers album? Um, I think, Lena's point about Bowie was a really good one, and we have discussed that on the previous pod as well. I mean, do you think these all have the stamp of the Banshees over them, or are there any missteps? Or I'm not really keen. I mean, I always think it's, it's a stage in a band's career where there's pressure to put something out, and it's they're not they're having a bit of writer's block and way, why don't we do a covers album? I, I tend to always think that that's what, Bands are doing it's okay, but it's not really my kind of thing. Um, I I, I always preferred the who was the band Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine. Every single twelve inch they released, the third track was a cover. Um, and granted, later on, I think you can find it on Spotify now. Um, there's a collection of these, but owning those twelve inches was literally the only way until your mate copied them for you, of, of finding their cover version of the Pet Shop Boys or their cover version of Shampoo <laughs> or whatever. And it was every single one. And it, that's why I bought every single Carter 12 into the Can't any other reason. It was an amazing thing. I, oh, <sighs> mate, oh, I, I still want to do that. That was just a cheap no, shot, no, no, that's, a, that's a conversation <laughs> for a different time. Um, right. <laughs> um, what we're going to do now is we are going to... Uh, hand you back over to the album introductions. And like I said, if you're on the Mixcloud version, the Mixcloud Select version, there will be tunes as well. And then you'll hear from all of us in a bit. The latest guitar-shaped hole in the Banshees was filled in by adding two new members to the band. John Klein from the band Specimen came in on guitar, and Martin McCarrick, who was Nick from Mark Allman, became the first full-time keyboard player along with cello, accordion, and whatever else they needed him to play. This new version of the Banshees tested the waters by recording the excellent single, Song from the Edge of the World. While the Banshees arguably may have fallen out of favor with the press by this point, they were still popular among their many fans. 
This was partially due to keeping up their relentless touring schedule, which included opening for David Bowie on the American leg of his critically maligned Glass Spider tour. One day on that tour, Susie was playing around with the band's version of John Cale's Gun from the previous album and realized that when she played it backwards, it sounded like a hip-hop beat. The band, wisely, did not produce a rap song. Rather, they wrote instrumentation around this backwards beat in the Banshee style, and it became the song called Peekaboo. The record company did not want to release the track as a single, and the critics were dismissive of it. In spite of that, it became one of the band's highest charting hits. Samantha Bennett, in her 33 and a third book on the Peep Show album, describes the song as being like a Weimar-era movie, and she explains how repetition of the title is used in the chorus as a way to both infantilize and criticize the viewer of a Peep Show. In her book, Bennett goes on to describe how each song on Peep Show is an embodiment of a different movie genre. While I think she stretches her comparison a bit thin at times, I will agree that Peep Show is possibly the Banshee's most cinematic album. Both Susie and Budgie felt this album represented the band at their creative high point. This was the first Banshee's album that I owned, rather than borrow from my older brother, and I still think it's one of their best. The Killing Jar is the top Banshee song. Burn Up has that great shuffle that sounds like a train chugging along while Susie's woes at the end of the song emulate a train whistle. Rawhead and Bloody Bones is frightening, and her voice on Rhapsody is amazing. The tour for Peep Show was one of the most elaborate that the band had ever put on. They said that they had decided to have a proper money-losing extravaganza. On stage, the band felt that they were performing at the peak of their abilities. Unfortunately, offstage, tensions were high, culminating in an ugly argument between Susie and Severin at the end of the tour. Susie thought of breaking up the band at that point. After the tour, she and Budgie headed to Spain to record Boomerang, their next Creatures albums, because she could not stand to be in the same room, much less the same country, as Severin. After time had passed, and against her better judgment, Susie and the band got back together in Wales to write and record a new album in late 1990. She and Severin had buried the hatchet after having not seen each other for over a year, but lying underneath the surface, much of the bit damage to their relationship seemed to remain. The recording of the album was a difficult experience, especially for Budgie since Severin, like so many at the time, was obsessing on the latest innovations in drum machines and samplers. Stephen Haig, who had previously produced Pet Shop Boys, New Order, and Erasure, was brought in to produce the album. Bringing in that synth-pop producer didn't help Budgie's situation. At a certain point, he thought, what am I doing here? Severin and Haig were enamored with new recording techniques, but the rest of the band were skeptical. Haig was using the latest technology to make instrumental and vocal corrections, but Budgie and Susie felt that some of the mistakes were what made their music good. Severin was also being influenced by a lot of South Asian music, which was popular in UK clubs at the time, and brought Talvin Singh, who later performed on Bjork's debut album, to play the tabla on the opening track. That's a nice coincidence because I remain convinced that Kiss Them For Me is secretly a long-lost Sugarcube song. That track was particularly difficult for Susie because she felt like she was being mixed under a microscope and put together with tweezers. She was also mad at the producer because he transposed the vocals on the song up out of her natural range, making it difficult for her to perform live. Yet, that troublesome track ended up being the band's highest charting single in the US, reaching number one on the alternative charts and number eight on the dance charts. Susie has said that the album was too clean for her, and aside from a couple tracks, she prefers their singles released around this time. Severin said, I think about a third of superstition is fucking brilliant, but any positive thoughts are tainted because I know how much Susie and Budgie hated making the record. When I listen to the album, to me it sounds like Budgie is being held back, especially when compared to what he's doing in The Creatures at this time. It's a fine pop album, but as Susie said, it's a little too clean, especially coming after Peep Show. There are some great tracks though. 
Little Sister has a bit of that disintegration cure sound. Silver Waterfalls is a great bouncy dance track. On Drifter, Susie is a full-on diva singer. Not all was sour news during this time. During the recording of the album, Susie and Budgie finally tied the knot and had a raucous wedding reception. After the album was released, the Banshees were invited to be one of the headliners on the first Lollapalooza tour, playing with Jane's Addiction, Nine Inch Nails, The Butthole Surfers, The Rollins Band, and many more members of my late 80s, early 90s CD collection. The band described having a great time on that tour. The Banshees got on with The Butthole Surfers more than any other band on that tour because, according to Susie, they were as old and as cynical as we were. The two bands would playfully disrupt each other's set, with Susie cracking fake bottles of Jack Daniels over Gibby Haynes' head during the surfer set, or Gibby would come out and do a drag strip tease during the Banshee set. Budgie didn't so much as fall, but rather he apparently jumped off the wagon during that tour to join in the drunken debauchery. All had a great time, but were happy when the tour was over because they felt as though someone would have died if it continued any longer. A couple of members of Jane's Addiction actually were declared legally dead on that tour, so technically, two people did die. After the release of Superstition, the Banshees recorded the face-to-face single for the Batman Returns soundtrack. The orchestrations on the song were done by Danny Elfman, and it's a single worth seeking out. Hello there, welcome back. Um, as regular listeners will know, um, I often forget to ask about things or I move on a conversation before it's ready to move on and then have to loop back to it with some form of tail between my legs. Um, we briefly mentioned the idea of the peel session um, and I <laughs> neglected to, to ask the two people who are on this pod what their experience of actually recording peel sessions was um, and, and, and also why, why were they important? Um, has anything replaced them? Um, I'm going to go to Lena first, and this is purely because you're closest to my screen on the Zoom. Um, you you did a peel session for your band, the Popping Jays. The Popping Jays did a peel session, but also Vim uh, is a is a peel session veteran, and I think it's interesting. You go from you know listening to peel sessions, taping them, like like Vim was talking about, to actually go being asked to go and do one, and. Uh, what happens is they, they say, oh, yeah, we'll just tape you like you're going to do a gig. And, of course, when you turn up to do a gig, it's at a rock and roll venue and everything's rock and roll and everybody's talking and it's great. And you turn up to do a peel session and it's like going to an office and everybody's very businesslike. And uh, they put you in a room and then some men come around and plug things in um, and you don't really know what's going on. And you just hear for, through the headphones, okay, can you try a number? And that's it. And so you play like you're playing live. It's all, it was all one take when we did it. And you have no idea how you've done. Nothing at all. No feedback whatsoever. Just can you do the second song now? And, just, and that's it. And I don't know if, if Vim had a similar experience. Maybe she'd like to tell us. Well, in our um, zine eight, was it zine seven? We we actually talked to various people about the experiences of doing a peel session. Um, my experience was being overawed with the history of the Maida Vale Studios and um, just how many people had recorded there and you walk past the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and all that kind of thing. Um, and, yeah, it's it's quite sort of 
punctuary and they're a little bit dismissive of bands that must come in every week and produce noisy, shambolic pop. And I don't really know what they think of it, but that you didn't get the impression that it was, it was anything very special and they didn't like it. Um, um, who, how'd you get, how'd you get invited? I mean, is, I mean, what John happened? John Peel rang me up. Apply? Oh, wow. So, so my band made a flexi disc, which we sent to John Peel, um, and he played it and then he rang up. And of course, every, nearly everybody who got rang up by John Peel just didn't believe it was, it was, they, they thought it was a mate messing about. And so, you know, typically it would be, oh, stop messing about. It's not you. And, and so he would have to, convince them that it was him and he did I think it got followed up by a letter maybe yeah that's exactly what happened to us John Peel rang me and Wendy lived wow. uh, in the same house at the same, at the time John Peel rang up Wendy answered the phone turned around to me and went yeah John Peel yeah obviously and then said something like yeah stop messing about exactly the same thing put the phone down <laughs> 30 seconds later, the phone rings again, and Wendy's like, oh, who is this? Who is this mucking about? Picked it up, and it was it was John Waters, the producer, right? who, who said, nobody ever believes he rings them up. <laughs> I do think from all the stories about John Peel, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but all the stories about John Peel, the things that I think we missed the most are the fact that he tried to listen to every tape he got sent. Yeah. He was responsible, single-handedly responsible for championing so many bands. There wasn't a bunch of researchers. There wasn't you know, some young runner in the studio who had to go and find this stuff. It was all him. Yeah. You know, he and, and he was really, really passionate yeah, he about was. it. I think there's there's something really there was something really genuine about his love of it because why would he be ringing bands up? You know, and um, we we heard all sorts of things from you know Dolly Mix just said that they actually took um, a sanitary a sanitary towel bag from the BBC toilets because they just wanted a souvenir <laughs> and there weren't any souvenirs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, all right. I'm going to try and get us back on track a little bit. Um, we are now moving on to 1988's Peep Show, which this was my in. I'd heard a few... Susie tracks. I was aware of Susan the Banshees, and I think maybe a, maybe eighty nine. I went to Wolverhampton Public Library, town centre now city centre, and that day I took out for two weeks um, this album, and also Julian Cope, My Na- Nation Underground. I think was, I got this. I remember getting them on the same day, and while some people might say that some of the earlier work is is, is their best stuff, this was my way in. I think Peekaboo is one of the single greatest tracks released by anybody ever. I think it, it's an astounding piece of work. Um, yeah, I mean, Scarecrow, what have you got? Rhapsody. It's, I think it's a brilliant, brilliant album. And I, I was having a look at some reviews as as I was preparing for this, and some people were like, yeah, they just started to tread water. I'm like, what do you mean? What, this, this is a great this, – this, for me, is their best album, but I'm aware that it's also my favourite album because this is – when I came in and I must have listened to it back to back to back to back to back before I had to take it back to, to, to the library. I probably taped it as well, to be honest, but you know, something like that. Um, Jeffrey, you've already mentioned that this was the first one you bought or you, no, you got it from your, the first one you bought that your brother didn't right. yeah. give you. Is yes. that correct? 
Yeah, this was the first one that I that I had. It was so this felt like where that thing where the the other Susie albums I liked them, but to me those were still sort of my brother's Susie albums, and so this was my Susie album, and so this was sort of like oh now I found my way into her because no one told me to listen to this. I didn't hear it from anybody else, and. Um, it is true what you said where they, they were saying and at the time the press was that thing where they build someone up so they can knock him down. They were deep in the knock him down territory now where people were saying they've gone all baggy. Um, and But Susie and Budgie both think this is their creative high. They think that they were just firing on all cylinders when they made this. And Samantha Bennett in her 33 and a third right here, um, she goes track by track painstakingly describing how each song is a little film and it's it, she she describes the album using the language of film semiotics and it's really wild how she describes how each song is how the lyrics work with what is going on in the music and the time signatures and the instruments to really create this little unique story for every little track yeah, yeah, fantastic. I, we'll definitely put a link to the, the 33 and the third book in the description as we're big fans of the whole series of books. Um, yeah, I think it's amazing. I think it's, like you said, creative, creatively wonderful. Um, was, this was a year, was this a, a year before the second Creatures album? So, so her and Budgie were working together a lot more around now, right? Yeah, I think Boomer- this is... Or Boomerang was about a year later or two years later. Yeah. Oh, I... I... I, I should mention quickly though, um, another guitarist out, John Carruthers was fired from the band after Through the Looking Glass. And so he was replaced with um two members. Um oh, sorry, everybody my notes are a little messy here. Um John but, Klein uh, and Martin yes. McCarrick. There it is, yes. <laughs> uh Martin McCarrick came in. Uh they got him from Mark Allman on the keyboards and John Klein on the guitar. Okay, so they, so they lost someone, shrank down, and then they got two other people in. Okay, um, and so what do we? Was there anything that happened? Did these new musicians have much creative input? Do we know on this album, or was it Budgie and Susie? I think it was Budgie, Susie, and Severin. I mean, Severin and, and Susie. Severin, Severin, of course. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about Severin. <laughs> How could you possibly? Severin and Susie were definitely splitting lyric duties, you know, if you check the back out. But I think what, what Peep Show has, you know, there's five banshees at this point. And also they're, they're using all that kind of slightly gypsy klezmer. They've got electro influences in there. You know, fantastic stuff. And peekaboo, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, they, 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 they've got a, a big history of big tracks to open albums but peekaboo for me just it not it, it knocked me sideways the first time i heard it i actually thought there was something wrong with the record player and i had to go over and double check it um because of all the sort of backward sounds <laughs> and things like that um Vim, yeah, I, I Vim, think where are you on, on peekaboo all the way i mean the album did quite well it reached number 20 in the uk 68 in the us um, i've got a comment here from someone who uh, corresponded with us on twitter uh, mike turner said which I agree, this is to do with all the albums, they took big chances with each album by not repeating themselves, but took their playfulness even further uh, when it came to the B-sides of singles. So I I think that taking things further and taking chances, uh, yeah, it really applies here to the sound of it. And I like it. I didn't 
I wasn't into it at the time, but listening back to it, um, and I think it it has more um, seriousness and depth to some of the other stuff that would have been around at the time, the sort of Tiffany's and the um, Belinda Carlisle, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I was, thinking, I was trying to. I always, often, we try and talk about who people's peers were, and this, if this was '88, I mean, this was even. So it was, the bands I was liking at the time were sort of maybe coming into their second albums or finishing their first albums. You wonder stuff. Your pop will eat itself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yes, the Cure were out there. Smiths were out there. Sisters of Mercy and the Mission. I think that was pretty much. Those were the flag bearers of alternative UK sound. I think at the time, right, Nick? Was there anyone else? Yeah, quite possible. I didn't really. Um, I, my my taste didn't really come in until about eighty nine. <laughs> I was still floundering about oh, in '88, listening to beautiful stuff. <laughs> I still, I, 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 I didn't stop listening to dreadful stuff just because I started listening to indie. I mean, well, yeah, I true. I still love dreadful stuff, stuff but the dreadful garbage. stuff that I can still listen to now—that's the change. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's always the fa- it, it's always the phases, though, right? I mean. I look back and I started out. I, I, could, I can categorize Grebo years, mm. which was there was about two or three Grebo years. Then I got all grunge because everyone got grunge. I had my industrial year. I had my Britpop year and a half. Then there was that summer everybody liked acid jazz. And then I sort of got back into indie. And then it was only when I got into, I don't know, maybe in my 30s that I went, you know what? I've now got a mix of modern new stuff and old stuff and I can pick and choose. And I wasn't just veering from. From scene to scene to scene, um, I think yeah, my first thought was there was a good year of Grebo, mm. and some of that I still love to pieces, and some of that I've tried to listen to and gone. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, all right, so anybody got anything else to say about this one before we move no. on, Jeffrey? Nope. All right, um, we're going to move on a bit, but also I did briefly ask this question a minute ago, um, and we did talk about them in the last episode. Boomerang, the next Creatures album, was around this time, I think. Um, am, I, am I right? Yeah, I've got mental, Jeffrey. Okay. And uh, so obviously you've got Susie and Budgie working together creatively. Uh, were they together romantically by this point not that it really matters well, good good timing to ask that actually because they uh announced their engagement and get married in 1991 and so uh right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah soon after the creatures album came out and they had been secretly dating for a while for quite a while right around the time of the first creatures ep and they often said anyone who looks at the cover of that first ep could tell that they were more than just friends it's a very intimate album cover Oh, that one. Yeah. Oh, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do you think, do we think, do we know that, because obviously the Banshees, there are three plus, they're up there, they are a three plus other people. When two of those three get together, does it cause problems? I mean, this, it's a hard thing to talk about because the band is very public, especially you mentioned how Susie is very public about, uh, about her opinions on things, but also they're very private about their private lives. And so, they, at the beginning of the band, Susie and Severin did, were dating, and they hardly ever talk about that. And Susie, in the, in the biography, often says that she thinks one of the frictions might have been that 
she started dating Budgie. And part of the reason she broke up with Severin is they didn't think bandmates should date each other. And that might have caused a sore oh. spot. And Severin denies it. But also, after the tour for Peep Show, which was their biggest tour ever, they put up this gigantic, extravagant tour and live set. Right at the end of the tour, she and Severin got into a gigantic fight, and Susie was going to break up the band at that point. And part of it was due to Severin bringing someone he was dating to an after party that they were going to. And so, how dare he? Right. I'm starting to feel sorry for it. <laughs> Only now. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm dumping you because we can't have band members together. Also, you can't bring your your partner to our band thing. Oh, by the way, I'm now, myself and the drummer are together. I mean, I'm starting to feel sorry for the guy, right? <laughs> right, a little bit. It's, it's hard to. And the reason I find it difficult talking about this stuff is just because they – they're very private about it. And so I know we don't know all the information and we kind of get one side from a lot of the stuff. I, 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 sometimes when I look at stuff now in the music press or Twitter or social media, I can't even imagine those times where you could have been private about it. You know, if they were this, if they were a band of that size out now, everyone would know all their private details. Everyone would know their, 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 their lives. It's really hard to keep that stuff out, out of the press. Okay. So, um, we've talked before and already mentioned about how they bring they reinvent themselves and they 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 bring something different to to every album. Um sometimes it's really good. Sometimes <laughs> uh it's not so much. Um for the next album, Superstition, they got together with what? The Pet Shop Boys producer and made what can only be described as a slightly awkward synth pop record. Um but I'm going to be told I'm wrong because I'm always told I'm wrong. Um, how did this happen, Jeffrey? How did they choose to go down this route? Well, uh, Susie and Severin decided to bury the hatchet, so they got back together to record in Wales. And Severin had brought in Stephen Haig to produce the album, and he really just wanted something that sounded modern and of the time. And so they brought in the drum machines and brought in the early version. It, I don't think it was called Autotune yet, but whatever does corrections to the band and he just wanted something that sounded like that modern sound of the time. And so. Cause nothing ages worse <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> than people trying to sound modern and of right. the time. <laughs> and so I think it's, it's a really tough album for the band because Severn really had a great time making it. He was enjoying embracing the new technology, but Susie said she only likes two songs on the album and she prefers the singles that they did without Haig. And the most frustrating thing is just Budgie, because if you have drum machines, you have one of the best drummers in indie rock, and he sounds like he has a hand, he's on a leash, like he's barely, it's just held back, he's holding back, and you don't get that. I think Budgie is one of the secret pieces that make the Banshees what are the Banshees. Um, do you think, I mean, a lot of bands now will use drum machines and synthesizers and, and sequencing and whatnot, um, but drummers now have grown up with it. So if Radiohead do a track with basically a drum machine, you don't feel that you're you're missing out. You feel that they're experimenting. But in 1991, if you are an indie rock, goth rock, punk rock drummer, and you're presented with a drum machine, I don't imagine you really know what you're doing with it. Um, um, Vim, did you ever go down the synth or even get tempted to go down the the uh, synth pop uh, route. Definitely not. Um, I mean, I think the interesting thing is people's ears get used to different things. And now, if I listen with modern ears to the early Banshee stuff, I would say it all speeds up. So songs that you listen to, Budgie, 
quite noticeably speeds up, which in a way makes the song exciting. But back then, people weren't listening out for that. Um, if you listen to stuff now, generally, it, the only speeding up and slowing down is programmed in because the, the way that the recording technology works now is that even if somebody plays something out of time, they press a button and it puts it in time and everybody's used to uh, everything just being exactly so. So, yeah, it, it, it's very overproduced. It's very computery. It it sounds very dated. Um, yeah. I think it's also, it came out of, I think it just, when you look back, you go, oh, what year is this? 91. What else was 91? Nirvana. Okay. So all of indie rock blew up around the world. Things shifted. Things changed. It's coming. It's the end of the the, the baggy era. Um, there's, there is indie going around at the time. You've also got this grunge scene coming, coming out of the US. And then they released a synth pop record that, <laughs> like I said, for me, just really doesn't work. Um, Lena, um, this was this was your era. You were out and about touring at the time. Um, I only know this, by the way, listener, because we I, I I realized before we started that I once saw Lena's band Popping Jays in 1991 um, when I was younger, and I was like, "Oh, wait, I think I saw you." I think I saw you. I think I saw you as well. <laughs> I there. You, you wouldn't recognize me. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, how do you think? I mean. When did you get to first hear this? Did you hear it at the time? Did you hear it when you sort of went back and sort of revisited stuff? And how is this album working for you? I mean, for a lot of us have said it just jars a little bit, but I feel, are we being too harsh? I, I think it's it sounds, I mean, I'm as guilty as anyone as going down the kind of drum machine route, but it, it was seen as kind of the thing to do. And a lot of people were very, very excited about it. Like, oh, it opens up all these possibilities and... Everything, but I think that you know superstition. I think it's it's got a it's got a few things. I mean, it's when Talvin Singh is on tablets, like for "Kiss Them for Me," which is like a very that's a great Banshee song, you know. And I th I think that um, that's a kind of you know that's fighting against all this computery. So I think there are there are sort of good things to say about it. It was as if it's the result of a meeting at a record company where they say they want something radio friendly. They're just about to break in the States, but they want something that's still a bit edgy. And that's, you know, I think that that's kind of the result. But, you know, good old Banshees, they'll sort of, they'll try it. You know, they'll use bass synths and machinery and stuff. And also Silver Waterfalls lyrics by Budgie. So he's turning into the Ringo, the Ringo of the Banshees. But luckily he doesn't sing, and luckily it doesn't sound like Octopus's Garden. But it was the one about waterfalls. So we've got octopuses and waterfalls. Yeah. That's what drummers like to sing, <laughs> write and sing about. <laughs> Aquatic stuff and yeah. water. Um, Nick, I know from your various WhatsApp messages <laughs> this week that some you found some albums difficult. Was well, this it, one of when, you, when you say difficult, it's more that sort of thing when you're starting to flag when you when you're trying to listen to the entire discography, and so you, you start to kind of feel like, well, this is just a bit boring and dirty. And I know I'm being harsh because I'm listening to you describe these records, and I'm thinking, this sounds great. I have to go and listen to this album. I realise <laughs> I spent the last week trying to listen to it and being bored shitless. But um, this album, my notes just say something like, "Pleasant enough." Don't really remember much. I didn't even mention any songs. And you see, as soon as you mentioned. Kiss them for me. I was thinking, oh yeah, that was good. I liked that one. But for some reason, when I listened to the album, I think the whole experience of the album was just, yeah, 
you know, the whole program beats thing in, in 91, it feels like, well, they, they weren't getting that right, were they? Because some bands did, you know, but this is no... Car to the Unstoppable <laughs> Sex Machine, for example. If you like. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's also, this is what I'm, we, we've, we've talked about this before. This is one of the failings of, of the format of listening to an entire discography yes. and then talking about it. Um, there are bands we've covered and my feelings have been totally changed three or four months later when I've had time to digest stuff, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. Um, when it's a band that's got three or four records, it's fine. I got time to do that. When it was, say, for example, The Fall, and I had to get through, what, 27 albums in six weeks, by the end of it, I was just like, Fall, Mark Smith, Fall, no idea. What's happening? Which one is this? Uh, well, just, I'd listen to them all again starts to wash. <laughs> we are not doing it again. We are not oh, doing it again. Give it a couple of years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> so um, we are going to we are going to move on. Um, to Jeffrey, who's put his hand up. Yeah, well, I, I was just going to say, I was. Uh, I feel I spoke a little harshly on this album at first, and it is one of those that grew on me while I was preparing for this talk even. And when I was listening to it over and over again, I think, as you say, one thing with the format is listening to an album once after a lot of the other albums, it can't have the same impact as just listening to that one album over and over again. Like when you went out and bought an album, and even if you thought the album was okay, you would keep listening to it until it grew on you. And um, sort of talked about gatekeeping a little bit where this album uh kiss them for me was their first number one u.s hit and fear of the unknown reached number six on the hot disco and dance charts and i'm not joking three days ago i, I am gonna i do have to jump in on here though you are also the country that gave jesus jones right. a number one hit single <laughs> I, so I, I, I won't own that but i know we did that <laughs> but i was in a hardware store three days ago and i'm not joking Fear of the Unknown came on over the speaker system while I was shopping for some sponges and things. Sponges. <laughs> so it and so okay. this album on on the tail of this album, then they went out on the Lollapalooza tour, the very first Lollapalooza tour, and were yeah. one of the headliners. And so for a lot, oh, the James Addiction yeah. one, Is that the James, right, James Addiction, Addiction yeah. Butthole Surfers, Nine Inch Nails, Rollins Band, um, and. So for a lot of people, this was their first Susie album, and this was their introduction to her. And so while it may not be my favorite, I know this is probably a lot of people's favorite because in America, at least, this was maybe for a generation, their introduction to Susie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it goes back to what we were saying earlier on. Sometimes your favorite album is not necessarily the best one. I mean, regular listeners know that I love the band Spoon and Nick thinks they're meh. But for many people, it's the Spoon, whichever Spoon album you come into. Or with Radiohead, you have people who, from the 90s, like the it's, it's, oh, 90s, okay, computer. You got into them later, it's uh, in Rainbows. It's usually one of the two that's your favorite, or unless it, unless you're correct and it's Kid A. Anyway, we're going to take a slight detour. We're going to listen to uh, Jeffrey talk you through, um, well, the final two albums that we're going to look at day and we'll all be back in a bit after the Lollapalooza tour Budgie and Susie relocated to France leaving the band fractured Budgie then recorded some tracks with the Indigo Girls and went out as their touring drummer with Susie occasionally coming out as a surprise guest at those shows the band eventually reconvened in France to begin writing and recording their next album Susie and Budgie wanted to ditch the technology and have the spontaneous sound of the band playing together again. They were happy, so of course Severin was not. It took well over a year for the band to pull the rapture together. 
Polydor was not pleased with the first version of the album, and so the Banshees brought in John Cale to finish production and mixing on the record. When the album finally came out, it received a lukewarm response and was their worst charting album in the UK. I actually prefer the album to Superstition. It feels a lot looser, and I can hear Budgie's presence again. It might sag in a couple of moments, but there are great tracks like Not Forgotten, Forever with Susie's voice and the guitar feedback whirling around Budgie's drumming, and Stargazer, where the guitar melody reminds me of an Alice Cooper song. The lukewarm response to the album dispirited the band. They still had time for one more guitar casualty, though. John Klein was let go from the band, apparently due to his constant arguments and nitpicking over publishing. Session guitarist Knox Chandler came in as the final touring guitarist for the Banshees. The band pretty much ended with a fizzle. Side effects of Susie's private health issues were making it difficult to sing. She had to get steroid and vitamin injections directly into her throat before each performance, and it was taking its toll on her. Also, Budgie's drinking was completely out of control again. Sue and Severin no longer seemed to have the same vision. Susie wanted to focus on the music, and she felt Severin was primarily looking at the band as a business at this point. After one of Budgie's drunken escapades on an airplane where he tried to break into the cockpit, Sue went to Severin and said, We should knock the band on its head, shouldn't we? It's not doing anyone any good, and it's not fun anymore. Severin matter-of-factly replied, Yeah, you're right. We should stop. And with that, the band was over. The Banshees went to Prague to record their final song, New Skin, intended for Paul Verhoeven's now infamous train wreck, Showgirls. It was the only studio song that Knox recorded with the band. With Knox's help, Budgie managed to clean up and kick the booze again. Susie and Budgie would record a few more Creatures albums, which are annoyingly difficult to track down, as are much of Severin's post-Banshee solo work, though I did discover just this week that he has a Bandcamp page with many things posted that I'm excited to explore. I was finally able to see Susie live in 1998 on a tour billed as The Creatures plus John Cale. It was a stellar show, though I was honestly not as familiar with the Creatures catalog back then. Regardless, being able to see an original member of the Velvet Underground perform Venus and Furs with Susie and Budgie was a pretty special moment. Remember, they're not a goth band. After the breakup, the Banshees would occasionally get together for one-off performances at festivals and had a full reunion in 2002 called The Seven Year Itch. After so many years had passed, this time Sue and Severin had genuinely put their contentious past behind them and said that they got along rather well. By all accounts, that tour was a wonderful time for the band. Susie and Budgie would continue touring, playing sets consisting of Banshees and Creature songs, but after a few years of silence, in 2007, the couple announced their divorce. A few months later, Susie would surprise her fans with the release of her first solo album, Manta Ray. The album was produced and recorded with session musicians, most of whom had previously worked with Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. I think it's a great collection of songs by an artist who's making music that she wants to make at this point in her career. The opening track is wonderful, and I really like Loveless. Honestly, the album hasn't left my playlist since it first came out. My brother and I were lucky enough to see Susie on this tour in New York. The set list was a mix of new material and older tracks, and Sue was putting on a great show and seemed happy to be performing. There was a home video released at the final concert of that tour. Since the release of the album, Sue has appeared now and again. In 2013, she was a guest closing out Yoko Ono's double fantasy set. She has contributed songs to movies and television show soundtracks, her most recent being the song Love Crime, which closed out season 3 of the series Hannibal. Susie has spoken of future albums and tours. There were unsubstantiated rumors on fan sites that her persistent health issues kept her from fulfilling these goals. 
Aside from a few outings with her current partner, fashion designer Pam Hogg, Susie seems to have chosen to move back into a relatively quiet life out of the public eye. A few months back from when I'm recording this, her website went live again after being dormant for nearly a decade, so who knows? Perhaps she has a few more unexpected surprises waiting for us in the future. Right, we are almost at the end of this look at Susie and the Banshees. Um, we didn't really have big looks at um, some of the side projects, um, mainly for time. Um, we left the Banshees breaking America, like right here, right now, Jesus Jones, and headlining Lollapalooza with some weird synth pop Pet Shop Boys-esque uh, sound. Surely the only way is up. Mega stardom. 90s with album after album after album raking it in. Jeffrey? Uh, not quite. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> after, um, after the Superstition album, they do have one more uh, sort of big hit with the face-to-face -face single on the Batman Returns soundtrack. And then you don't hear from them for a while, for about three years, and... They eventually get back together. Susie and Budgie uh, relocate to France and they get together at Susie and Budgie's place to begin work on the next album. And as they put it, Susie and Budgie were very happy. So Severin was not. And um, this album, they just wanted to get back away from the drum machines back into a more rock sound. And um, it took them, it, it sounds like it was just a pain to make the album. It took them over a year to get the rapture together. And they still weren't happy when it was done, so they brought John Cale in to finish the production and the mixing on the record. But yeah, the John Cale thing, from what I could gather, I mean, it's basically never worked with your heroes because the John Cale stuff doesn't on the album just doesn't seem to bring to it what I think they expected it to bring to it. If that makes sense to anybody, um, or I'm just saying the word to it over and over and over again. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it feels like a swan song, kind of. To me um lena um who would be who would have been your hero that you'd have got into the into the studio to produce oh. you and how disappointing would it have been <laughs> <laughs> i think the john the, for them the john cale thing was a bit of an odd choice but um the rapture in in kind of uh religious uh imagery is is it's like an end time event so i think that they always maybe knew this would be the last album um uh, you know the believers elevating themselves to the clouds. Um, so I, you know, I think I, I think there is an element of the last album, but I think by Rapture, the, the Banshees had unwittingly become a bit of a of a kind of pop group. I think that they they'd kind of discovered that they did write catchy songs, and I'm I'm going to just put a vote in in here for Oh Baby, like. Why would the Banshees write a song like Oh Baby? It sounds like The Pretenders and Texas with Susie singing on it. It's, it's a really kind of odd combination, but I think it totally works. I think it's playful. But I think there is a, there, there is, there is a bit of a Chrissy Hind about Susie by this point. Yeah. Um, a, lot, a lot of bands who came out of, yeah, a lot of people who come out of young spit vigor and and, and um, anger like with a punk scene at some point that they're going oh yeah i'm not that point person anymore i mean new order came out of joy division and then had a john barnes rap you know at some know. point people, <laughs> people changed so laddie though wasn't it <laughs> um, 
Oh, oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, now it's stuck in my head, so I have to try and get rid of that. Um, Nick, what are your thing, what, feelings what about the notes? rupture? What Either the wrote? album or the actual <laughs> event. <laughs> now the event, I've got opinions on that. No, the um, notes I wrote just basically says, who's it for? Like, I don't have a sense of like what the audience for this record was, where it's coming from. It feels like it's not really clear what they're trying to do. Um, or who they're trying to do it for. And I guess that's the thing. It's like, you know, not quite being able to square the circle of Susie and the Banshees as a pop group. Um, but that said, I just as I'm sort of feeling that, then there'll be a track like Not Forgotten that's like a little bit darker. And I'm thinking, oh, I quite like this one. Um, so it, it takes... Every album Every album did seem to do that, though, towards the end. Here's some lighter yeah, poppy there's stuff. There's a sort of stretch in the middle of this um, one. Come into um, the house, and then they'll just go... Do you want to just come and have a look in the cellar? There's something <laughs> going on down here. <laughs> and then by the end of it, they're going, oh, okay. But yeah, there's um, definitely, definitely some that. dark edges to it. But I don't know. I, was, I find it a confusing album. Let's put it like that. Um, I mean, interestingly, you, you naturally said as a pop group, and I think everybody seems to be right at this point. They, are, they have become a pop group. Um, did they have, I asked this question right at the beginning, album one, who were their peers? By this point, were there any other bands that had gone through that had the longevity of them who were still sort of or, or, or had they left everyone else by the way? The same scene from the 70s that was still going, you mean? I'm thinking, I, I forgot when the Dams Anything album came out. Um, and then they had their atrocious Not of This Earth, maybe around this time. But yeah, aside from, I can't think of anyone else. Even the, dam, even the Damned had right. disappeared into, you know, sort of. I mean, they were still, even if they're still knocking things, knocking stuff out, they weren't being, I mean, The Cure was still doing things, I guess, by this yeah. point, even though they didn't. Yeah, but even Blondie, um, but most people I don't did... think, were still doing much. No, I don't think so. Around 95, no. were they? They were having no. a little break. It was a few years later that they, they came back and just went, we're number one again. <laughs> I, it, it's very hard for any artist to go into the 80s and come out the other side without being <laughs> you know, scarred or destroyed. I mean, Bowie somehow managed it. Uh, the Rolling Stones took another 20 years to get back to, to producing back anything that was vaguely half decent. Um, but a lot of bands, they, they went into the 80s and came out a bit... Mm-hmm. I mean, you had, you had things like Big Audio Dynamite, I guess. Um, Terry Hall was, was coming back and doing stuff in the early mm-hmm. 90s after sort of disappearing... But then he also did, oh, we should do a Terry Hall episode. I'm down with that. That'd be amazing. Specials, Fun Boy 3, and his solo stuff, right. I'm, I'm um, okay. For that. Um, so if this was their last studio album, where does it sit in terms of last albums? I mean, some bands just totally collapse and disappear, and their last thing is a pile of turd. Some bands go out on a high. I don't think this is either, right? Yeah. It's just a... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I just say I don't find any of the albums awful. Is the thing is that for this, you know, it's a very consistent career, right, right, all the way through. Even though I don't particularly love a lot of it, I can still see that they're strong albums with good songwriting on them. You know, and there's not many yeah. bands can say that yeah. over such a long period of time and so many albums. Because what are we up to now? This is like her, vo- her voice. Her voice got. She she got comfortable with her voice and realized how to use it to greater effect with every album. Mm-hmm. She's uh, on the last album, this album, she's almost diva point it right now. And it's, she's really just leaning into her 
extravagant singing style. And I really like, um, like Nick said, Not Forgotten is a great one. And Forever, I really like on this album. And between the last two, I actually like, I prefer this one a little bit more just because for me, I, I like that Budgie sounds like he's actually engaged again. And I know the album was a struggle, but it just, it sounds a little more or- organic than the previous album to me. Yeah, I, I agree with all that, Jeffrey. I think I think the other thing is towards the later albums, it's the influence of some of those other, other kind of instruments, the tablas, the Indian influences. Um, some of those things just make it a little bit different, and I like that. Um, I'm just realising that when I asked, does anybody know of any bands that were knocking around from the 70s, went through the 80s, that were still releasing stuff, Nick did not mention The Fall once. <laughs> and regular it, listeners of this show will... <laughs> no, no, no. I was just there thinking, surely there was someone... This goes without be- saying, that, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were having a wobble um, around 95, okay. to be fair. We've had, we've had my opinions. Um, we're not going to go down that route again. Right. So this was the end of the band per se, but it's not the end of the story because we've got one more thing to talk about, which was what, 12 years later. Um, yeah, about 12, 12 years later, Susie comes back with a solo album, Manta Ray, um, which I think is really – I never listened to it before this afternoon. I, I listened to it this afternoon. And I got massive PJ Harvey vibes um, regularly throughout this. Um I think it sounds like a, a, an established, um, talented artist who's just come back to remind everybody, you know, hey, kids, this is how you do it. You know, and this would be right, the, the era of the gold fraps and stuff would be around the mid, would be around this I period, guess, yeah. I think. So there was definitely female artists, solo female artists in, you know, uh, in the charts. And obviously these things go through, through cycles. Sometimes there aren't as many uh, 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 and sometimes it's male singer songwriters and sometimes it's this 2021 was single female uh, pop artists again so things go cyclical but she came back i think it's brilliant i mean basically i listened to this album and i was like, oh this is much better than the last two banshees albums i'm, I'm really enjoying this i find it surprising that this is the only solo uh susie sue album you know, it feels like a thing. I mean, it, I, I get the impression she enjoyed making this, which is not an impression I get about a great deal of the other albums. They all sound like they were really painful experiences. And um, I think it's... Well, you mean the album she recorded with either her boyfriend, her ex-boyfriend, or her ex-boyfriend who did <laughs> like a And a string of guitarists she hated. Apart from those. <laughs> yeah, basically those. Well, that's it. But without, you know, without all those people in the studio, it sounds like she was having a better time, I think. And she sounds more in control um, I don't know. Maybe that's not fair to say. Not in control. It's not like she sounded out of control in the other albums, is it? But um, I guess somebody has to say it that they, these sound like Bond themes, right? Yeah, And you listen to it and you think, "Wow, what a missed opportunity that was!" Having her do a Bond theme. There's even a track called "If It Does Kill You," which is like it's a Bond title. That's the next Bond film. There. I've, I, I've now got Susie Sue singing Skyfall instead of Adele in my head, which is actually a much better, much better place. Um, Jeffrey, so why just the one solo album? Do we know why? Why when did did she? Why did she feel this was the the time to come back? There hasn't been another one since. I don't know. As I is this her one? As I said, she she sort of sprung this on people. It came out unexpectedly after the Banshees broke up. The Creatures continued for a while. And so she and Budgie were still working on those albums, which are, at least in America, frustratingly difficult to find. And 
they're not streaming anywhere on YouTube or anything. And so I still haven't heard a couple of those creatures albums. Um, and then she, she would do a couple guest spots here and there. And then just out of nowhere in 2007, she announced that she, she and Budgie announced that they were separating. And then a few months after that, this album was just popped on people and no one knew it was coming. And, um, so it's just a breakup album. Everyone has their breakup album at some point. Was this was this actually a breakup album? It doesn't album? sound like it to me. Was this like Tay Tay <laughs> singing a, doing a diss album about her, her exes? It, it definitely doesn't feel like those Bjork breakup albums at all. Like it, it, it this doesn't oh, feel gosh, like yeah, that was, I remember that. Now. <laughs> this doesn't feel like a bitter album. I mean, it, like you said, it sounds like not. Uh, I don't know if in control is the right word, or it just sounds like it's her vision. It does. This feels like it's just wholly the vision that she wants out there, and. Um, I, I just think it's a wonderful album. Um, I'm gonna, I mean, I'm, I, I'd, I'd rather, I want to change this conversation, move into a more sort of legacy artist taking control of their image and their place in the scene, which I feel she's doing with this. She's coming back in and she's going, Hey, I'm an, I'm an amazing female songwriter and singer. I'm not just part of the band. Uh, I can still do this stuff. And she seems to be, she seems to have released an album that was very much modern and of its time. It still sounded like her, but also she was releasing it as her legacy, as Susie, I guess, um, has influenced a lot of the artists who would probably have been in the charts with her around about 2007. I mean, as a legacy artist, how hard do people think it would be to sort of come back in and go, no, kids, this is how you do it, without people going, fuck off, granddad, or grandma or, or whatever it would be you know um lena vim i'm going to ask you about the sort of the legacy side of this and the sort of Susie coming back rather than the album itself um what are your thoughts on uh, sort of coming back with a one-off a one-off album to say fuck off kids i'm Susie." yeah i think you know why not i think this is an album that she's evidently made because she wanted to rather than because anybody made her or there was some kind of contractual obligation i think it's you know it, to me, um, Rapture's quite a, a, a playful album, and I think that Manta Ray kind of continues that in that she's she's obviously still engaged and interested. And, you know, her legacy, yeah, she's a great vocalist. I'd love to hear the Bond theme album now. I that's want it that. Now, right? That's all, that's all we want. I think that's got to be our mission. <laughs> We've got to, you know... Instead of doing do instead of doing all those other cover versions, can we just have a Bond theme album? I mean, there's a lot of Shirley Bass. There's a lot of Shirley Bassey in it. I can imagine her sort of easily taking it, tackling a lot of the, a lot of the Bassey classics. Absolutely, I'd, yeah, I'd like to hear the Banshees on Goldfinger. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So, um, Vim, I'm going to head to you before we, before we move on, and just again. I think that the, the means of recording is also interesting because I always look at it in terms of, you know, what would be somebody who's been in the business for this length of time, what would their daily life be like? What would their goals be? If you've done everything that Susie had done, what is it that you want to do? And and when you look at Rapture, and that was very much based in France, so where they lived, it was created there, it was recorded in Toulouse, it, you know, it was kind of a, their French life. Um, whereas this was more commuting back, coming to Bath for uh, blocks of time, uh, recording sort of two or three tracks and then back to France and then back to Bath. More like, you know, going to work to do a job, which is very different from being on your own patch 
spending months and months and months where you're thinking about it the whole time. I just think um, in terms of how you think about your creative process, that, that makes a big difference. Yeah, okay, that that makes that makes a lot of sense. And also, I imagine if you're doing it on your own, I don't know, in your own country sheet, and you're locked away, there are times that that creates moments of creative wonder, and there are times where artists of various genres over the time have just basically disappeared up their own ass and and turned out something that has been yeah. Oh, we've been working on this for ages. We now just want to go outside and, and see other people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Okay, so we have gone. We have spent two episodes going through the albums of Susan the Banshees. Who, yeah, there was a couple of albums that sort of dipped, but generally they're a relatively consistent output right from the off. And definitely, I think Susie grew not grew into her voice, but knew how to use her voice as an instrument more as as they moved forward. Um, I'm very happy that the second episode of this two episodes man had some good stuff in. That has not always been yeah. the case when we've looked at artists. Um, I had issues with Can, but I will also admit that the first episode was significantly better than the second second episode. <laughs> and I think Nick would I agree think with most me. people would. Um, yeah. yeah, we we could just go and delete that second no, no, episode. No. Get it? <laughs> Get it over there. Um, so. First of all, Jeffrey, I want to thank you ever so much for for your hard work, putting uh, doing all the research, putting together uh, the introductions, etc. It's been fantastic having you back on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Um, and yeah, I, I, and we will see you again, for, probably for another band with a breakup album at some point. Um, and to our fantastic guest, the punk girl. Di- I'm going to say punk girl diarists because I quite like. Same punk girl diarists, um, Vim Reno and Alina Cortina. Vim, thank you very, very much for coming on. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And we're hoping that it will go some way towards persuading Susie to one day speak with us because we've had some quite good interviewees oh. with punk girl diaries in the past. But Susie remains one of our, our top people that we'd really love to speak with. Oh, Christ, to. I hope I didn't say anything that ruins it, that for it, you. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 don't worry about it, Nick. Susie won't listen to this, that's, but if you are true. listening to this and you're somebody who can get make this happen, um, I don't know, you work in PR or you're an agent or something, get in touch and we'll, 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 we'll do some good for the world. And also, also, um, thank you very much, Lena Cortina, um, the other punk girl diarist. Thank you so much for having us on. We've absolutely loved it. It's just been great to re-listen to all these fab- fabulous albums and lovely to listen to them sequentially and have a reason to do that. And you have been so insightful, so funny, so charming, and so fun to be with. Thanks so much for having us on. You, you recorded Thank that, Thank you yeah? very much. Uh, at some point, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's a trailer. Um, at some point, we might ask you on uh, the other pod, the, the one where we just, but we'll talk about that some other time. Uh, right. Um, obviously, in frequency.co.uk, uh, go there, find out everything. If you like the show, um, please think about coming to our Mixcloud and subscribing for $2.99 a month. The artists do get more money out of that $2.99 than we do, um, but it is a way of you know legitimately playing tunes um, in um, our shows as well. Um, yeah, not much more to say. Um, check out the other pod that came out with this in this month's Infrequency, and um, see you next time. Bye. Bye. 
And that was Susie and the Banshees. Thank you so much to the Punk Girl Diaries for bringing your own brand of anarchy to the show. They were Lena Cortina and Vim Reno, and you can read their excellent blog or pick up a copy of their zine at punkgirldiaries.com. We hope they'll join us again in the future. Thanks also, of course, to Jeffrey McDonald for adapting his Facebook immersion to the podcast format with those wonderfully detailed album introductions. Jeffrey's asked me to point out that in this episode, he mistakenly claimed that Dam's Anything was released in the mid-90s, when it was, of course, released a decade earlier. If you spot mistakes in the show, feel free to contact us, either via infrequency.co.uk or on Twitter, where we're at tempfans. For the record, me not liking your favourite album does not count as a mistake, but I guess you can tell us anyway. The next episode of Temporary Fandoms will be on another band entirely, and we'll do our best to keep bringing you guests of the same quality as today. Until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and how in the world can I wish for this? Never to be torn apart till the last beat, till the last fleeting beat of my heart.